0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ and His power and love even now as you listen. The woman who wrote that song, Fanny Crosby, was blind, but I think she saw so much so much that God had given to her. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the blessed assurance that we can have in, in Christ. Lord, as we, we dig into your word right now and we, we think about what it means to be servants to one another, to, to serve you, to serve one another in, in love. Lord, we pray that you would make us outward-focused people, people who are living not for ourselves, but for your glory, looking up to you in faith and out to our neighbor in love. Lord, speak to us today about stewardship, about, about being able to make an, an, an impact in, in, in the world, Lord, through uh, the resources that you have given to us, Lord, and, and as we think about contentment, as we think about true satisfaction, what, 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 what truly, who can truly satisfy our souls? Where is godly contentment found? Lord, we, we know that, that, that many in our world, and probably in this room today, struggle with that. Lord, we need you to show us that through your word, by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus that we pray, amen so back in, back in the day when um, before Spotify and, and Apple music, you know when we would get excited about when a saw, our song came on the radio, you know there used to be uh, countdowns that they would do on the on the radio of the hits and now, I can remember one weekend they did a countdown of like the, the greatest songs of all time. And I'm thinking, you know, who determines that? But you know, anyway, whoever made that determination in this particular list, the number one song that they came up with of all time was the Rolling Stones song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which is a weird choice to me. That would not even be in my top 25 Rolling Stones songs, let alone, you know, the top songs of, of all time. But the title of that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, does epitomize something about Western culture. Because we have more stuff than everybody else, but often less satisfaction than anybody else. Who can truly satisfy our souls? Where is true contentment found? Let's talk about that. Open your Bibles this morning to First Timothy chapter six, and we're going to talk about finding true contentment. First Timothy chapter six. What does the Bible tell us about finding true contentment? And, and, and as Paul here in chapter six is finishing up the letter, and we'll finish it next week, he's 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 looking he's, he's giving final instructions to Timothy on various topics, and what we see here. In, in chapter 6, it's something about, um, first of all, about real servanthood. Let's take a look and see what he says here. First Timothy 6, and we're going to talk about finding true contentment. He says, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words, these come from, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. now skip down to verse 17. he says instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So what do we see here in these Verses. First of all, Paul is telling us something here about real servanthood. So in verses 1 and 2, he's giving Timothy instructions about slaves in the congregation. And since this letter was going to be read to the congregation, was it just privately to Timothy? Um, the slaves who were in the congregation would, would hear this instruction as well. So in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, where Ephesus was, where this letter is going to. In a city like Ephesus, about a third of the population would have been enslaved, and that held true for other cities like you know, Corinth and other major cities in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Huge percentage of the population were slaves. And so in these cities, as the gospel was taking root, slaves were coming to Christ and people who owned slaves were coming to Christ, which made for an interesting dynamic in the church, which is why Paul addresses this over and over and over again in his letters. So he addresses it in Colossians 3, Ephesians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, Titus 2, makes passing references to it in Galatians 3 and Galatians 5, and then the the book of Philemon is a letter from Paul to a slave owner whose slave has run away, come to Christ, and has joined in with Paul in ministry. So how does Paul handle this issue? Well, before we see how he handles it, we need to kind of understand a little bit more of the lay of the land of what it was. Because you know, as Americans, when we think about slavery, our mind immediately goes to the slavery that existed in our country prior to the Civil War. This was very different. First of all, it was not race-based. You could not look at a person in one of these cities and, and, and tell whether or not they were a slave by the color of their skin or the clothes they were wearing or anything on the outside. Um, Many of these slaves were 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 better educated than their their than their owners. Um, they held all kinds of jobs in societies. Slaves were teachers, other kinds of uh, professional uh, jobs. They had become slaves, either because of war or for economic reasons. And for most of them, it was a temporary status. Most most slaves in this culture uh, would 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 earn their their freedom. Still, it was one human being owning another, right? And they're both in the same church, and, you know, and Paul needed to, uh, to, to, to address it. So when you look at all of these passages, right? Studied all these passages about where Paul addresses this issue of slavery. He's talking to slaves, talking to slave owners. When you look at all of them together, it's really clear Paul's not a fan (laughs) of slavery, right? And you can see that by reading between the lines of what he says and sometimes on the lines of what he says. We saw already in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, right? You remember in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he's got this long list of like different categories of sinners. He, he puts in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 10, he puts slave traders in the same list as murderers, you know, and a whole list of other categories of, uh, of, 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 of sinners. So, you know, Paul's not a fan of the institution of, of, of slavery, no no but some people you know in our culture they read and they say well hey why doesn't he explicitly call for the abolition of slavery well for at least two reasons okay first of all in the first century Christians at this point were a tiny persecuted minority with no political power whatsoever second Paul's got a different mission right his mission is to make disciples plant churches and to, and win the world to Christ And it was the success of that mission that eventually was going to lead to the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire and many other parts of of the world throughout history. It's been Christian influence that has brought an, an end to slavery. But at this point, as Paul is writing these letters, he's concerned with very practical things about how to deal with this within these fledgling congregations and when you read all these texts where he addresses this issue, really, th- there are two things to me that, 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 that come through, right? One, Paul is super concerned about how Christians treat one another within the church. New Testament scholar William Mounts uh, says, says this. Uh, Mounts says, while not condoning slavery or calling for its dissolution, Paul makes it clear that the deeper and more significant relationship is that between two believers rather than how society defines their relationship. In other words, you know, Paul is saying to these people, look, society says, you know, you're in different categories. You know, one of you is legally free, one of you is legally a slave. But the gospel says... Right, that that spiritually, you've both been set free in Christ and you are to serve one another in love. So you see passages like Galatians 5 and verse 13, which says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. The second concern that I see when I, I read all of Paul's passages about slavery is he's very concerned about how outsiders were perceiving the church. Imagine if you had a Christian slave you know, who, who comes to Christ and he, and he tells his pagan master, hey, you know, I'm in Christ now, I'm free in Christ, I don't, I don't need to serve you anymore. Well, that would wreak havoc. Right, Christians were already persecuted. <laughs> that was, something like that would just ratchet up the persecution of Christians even more. Right? So Paul's got that concern. And you see that concern reflected here in what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 1. So let's look at it. He says, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Right? He doesn't want the name of Christ dragged through the dirt in, in, in pagan culture, in the community, because of you know, disruptions regarding uh, slavery. Um, and then, uh, in verse two, he says, let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, Since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. In other words, again, the society is telling you that you're in two separate categories. One free, one slave. But the gospel tells you that you are one in Christ. And you're to serve one another in love. Galatians 3 and verse 28 it says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Some years ago, I was leading a Bible study uh, for some, some guys in a, a church I was pastoring. It was very near Langley Air Force Base. And so this was an early morning uh, Bible study uh, for guys. And so, you know, in, in, as we, and in, in that study, We had everybody from a two-star general to very young enlisted guys to every age and rank in between. But I wanna tell you, as we sat around that circle with our coffee and open Bibles, we were just brothers in Christ, serving one another, loving one another, digging into the text together, trying to help one another apply the text and sharing from experiences in our own lives just this beautiful band of brothers, right? That, that's, that's what Paul is, is getting to here, right? Real servanthood. Second, real sickness, <laughs> okay? In verses three through five, what he's doing here is talking about these false teachers again and the absolute havoc that they have wreaked in the church at Ephesus. Verses three through five are, are one long sentence in Greek, and it is just a searing indictment. Let's look at it. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with a sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, wow. Now throughout this, this passage, throughout verses three through five, there's a, there's a medical metaphor that Paul is using. If you look at verse three, he talks about the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that word sound means healthy, it's a medical term. What he's saying here is that the gospel is spiritually healthy, it's healthy doctrine and it brings about healthy lives. By contrast, this false doctrine that these teachers have been propounding in Ephesus uh, was, was, was unhealthy. Verse, verse 4. He talks about uh, an unhealthy interest, a, a sick, sickly craving. You could translate that way, a sickly craving, right, for uh, these disputes. In other words, these guys were sick. Their doctrine was sick, and their effects on the church was sick. Now, let's dig into it a little bit more. He says of these false teachers in verse 4, right? If anyone does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that promotes godliness, he says in verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing. These false teachers were, were bloated with conceit, you know, full of, full of themselves, full of hot air, you know, think about the first Willy Wonka movie and uh, the, the gum chewy know know-it-all violet who, who blows up like a blueberry, right? That's these guys, puffed up with their conceit. They think they know something, and in reality, they know nothing. He said in chapter one and verse seven, they, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about. And then they have sick desires. Look at verse four again. He says they have an unhealthy interest, a sick craving uh, in, in, in disputes, an in interest in dispute, unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words, literally wor- word battles, word battles over nonsense. You ever been in a Bible study? You know where there's somebody who just like you're trying to get into the you're trying to get into the text but they want to talk about everything but the text. You know, it's it's always you know you, you, it, it, they it's it's a constant distraction. They just don't want they don't want to deal with what's there. There's a reason for that. Right? They, they they can't deal with the truth. And so they're trying to find distractions from the truth. They don't want to they don't want to see the truth. They don't want to apply the truth. Kent Hughes says this about such people. He says, I have spent hours with such people who cannot or will not grasp the plain meaning of a sentence or paragraph in its context, but rather fix on a word or soundbite and give it a definition that defies lexicons, history, or logic. Nothing dissuades them. Nothing informs them. They understand nothing and they enjoy it. Well, think about if somebody like like this gets in leadership in the church. That's what had happened in Ephesus. These guys were pastors. They were elders, right? And it had just just caused untold damage in this church. And he tells us about that damage in the latter part of verse verse 4 and verse 5. He says, from these come envy." quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. John Stott says when people's minds are twisted, all their relationships become twisted too. Now in the latter part of verse five, he tells us something else about these guys' motivation. He says in the latter part of verse five that they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. In other words, these guys are are after money. Now, what this is gonna lead to in verses six through 10 and again in verses 17 through 19 is just one of the most beautiful reflections in the New Testament on the subject of, of contentment. All right, so let's look, thirdly, at real satisfaction. And we are kind of look at this in two parts, okay? First of all, he's saying that godliness is gain. Look at verse six. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, this is kind of a play on words. Because at the end of verse five, right, he says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a way to material gain, right? They put on a pretense of godliness in order to to get material gain, but Paul says true godliness really does lead to gain. It leads to great Gain, that's what we get, mega, mega gain, right? True, true godliness really does, it leads to great gain, but not the kind of gain these guys are after. It leads to, to, to something far better. It, it leads to what Paul says in Ephesians 3.8 is the unsearchable riches of Christ. A riches that's a whole lot better than, than money Now, let's talk about this word contentment. He says in verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. When the Greek philosophers uh, use that, the word that he uses here, it would often be translated as, as self-sufficiency. Right? They viewed the ideal person as someone who could just simply re- rely on their own uh, resources. So they gave it the meaning of self-sufficiency, but Paul here takes this word and he fills it with a totally different meaning. When Paul uses this word, contentment, his meaning is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Paul's like, why would you ever want to rely on a broken crutch like you when you can rely on one who rose from the dead? And so he says, in, in like in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4 and ver- verses um 11 through 13, Paul says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little and I know how to to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. And then he tells us what that secret is, where that contentment comes from. I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength. Christ sufficiency. Now let's look at verse seven here. He says, for we we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. You know, when John D. Rockefeller uh, died, who was the richest man in the world at that point, someone asked one of his aides how much did John D. leave behind? And this very wise aide said, oh, he left all of it. Every penny of it. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5.15 tells us, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and as empty handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. We made a possessionless entry into the world, and we will make a possessionless exit from the world. He says in verse eight, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Wow, <laughs> can you say this honestly? I mean, what a challenging verse, right? What I mean, for American believers, right, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Now, he's probably chosen those two categories of food and clothing because of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew 6... In verses 31 through 33, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we we drink, or what will will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Jesus says, in other words, you seek, the kingdom of God, you seek the rule and reign of God in your life, you make that your focus, and you let God take care of the rest. God will provide for your necessities, and he may provide beyond your necessities. And if he does that, then you receive them with gratitude and use them for his glory. And that's what he's saying in verses 17 through 19. So skip down to verse uh, 17. It's like Paul goes to another subject, and then he wants to say more about it, (laughs) right? So it comes back around to the same subject. If he could have cut and paste, he probably would have put 17 right after, you know, um, verse 10. But look at verse 17. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Listen, there were people in the church at Ephesus who were wealthy. And Paul doesn't condemn them for that. He's not an ascetic. You know, his, in his theology, you know, all these, these things, things were given by God to enjoy. So, so he doesn't condemn rich Christians. He says, God has given us all things to enjoy. He said that earlier in the letter. But if we are wealthy, and look, by the standards of most people in the first century, and certainly by the standards of most people in the world today, most of us in this room would be categorized as wealthy, right? And some of us are, would be incredibly wealthy, by, by these standards, right? But he says, if that's, if, if that's you, if you're blessed with wealth, here's what you've got to watch. You've got to monitor your heart so that your hope and your affection is not set on the gift, but on the giver. You've got to monitor your heart so that your hope and your affection are set on God, who gives us all things to enjoy. Now, how do we do that? How do we make sure that we haven't slipped over into idolatry so that money has become an idol? There is a way of telling that, okay? And the way that we can know that is if we are willing to give for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. That's exactly what he's talking about here in verses 18 and 19. He says, instruct them, right, wealthy believers, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, believers who are blessed with wealth have an incredible opportunity and an incredible responsibility. Because you can make a massive difference in the life of the church and what the church can do for the advancement of the gospel, you can make a massive difference in missions and in the lives of people, in your community, and all around the world. And if you are rich in good works, as he's talking about here, right? If you are generous and willing to share what you're also doing is laying up an incredibly an incredible reward for the future. Right? Storing up treasure for yourselves. These words are like directly from the teaching of Jesus, right? When he says to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Right? Jesus says lay up your treasures in heaven, right? You can't take it with you. You know, I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You just don't see it. You can't take it with you. What you can do is send it on ahead. And God will, will greatly reward it for all eternity. So godliness is gain, right? Then going back to verses 9 and 10, he's talking about the fact that greed is loss. Greed is loss. Look at verse 9. He says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice here that Paul distinguishes between people who are rich, who he addresses in verses 17 through 19, and people who want to be rich. He's addressing that here in verse 9. Those are two different things. Being rich is not necessarily a spiritual problem. Wanting to be rich is always a spiritual problem, and it leads to more problems. Look at it again. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. How many terrible decisions have been made because you want to be rich, people want to be rich, that they have that twisted ambition? Terrible financial decisions, terrible job decisions, terrible decisions about where to live, and and maybe most importantly, Precious relationships in your life neglected because you wanted to chase another buck. Look at verse 10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many grease. Now this verse is often misquoted. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. Money is neutral. He takes it deeper. He goes to the level of desire. He says the love of money is a root of of all kinds of, of evil. From this twisted love, People do all kinds of evil things and sometimes just downright stupid things. And they become, he says, impaled, pierced by their own cravings. They have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many grease. Faith in shambles. Family and shambles, friendships and shambles. And for what? Because you spent your life pursuing something that will not satisfy you. C.S. Lewis very wisely says in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I want to tell you something. You were made for more than mirrors. You were made by God and for God. You were made for him, for, to live for his glory. And Jesus says that when you do that, when you lose yourself and the pursuit of his glory, then you find yourself. You find out what life is all about and who you were created to be. And there's a satisfaction that nothing in this world can provide. Augustine said this in his confessions, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Instead of piercing yourself with many miseries and griefs, look to the one who was pierced for you. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 53, five. He says of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provided your son who was pierced for us so that we don't have to be pierced. We thank you that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life that we could never live, and then died the death, we should have died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and that he rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life. And as we reflect before the Lord, listen, I would ask you today, do you know Christ? Turn to the one who was pierced for you, who died for you, who rose for you, who rules and reigns as king the only one who can truly bring contentment and satisfaction to you, turn to Jesus, trust him, give him your life. Christian, you are on this earth to live for God's glory. Everything that you are, including your resources, are to be leveraged for the glory of God. Life is about him, not about us. What can you do to leverage your life, the things He has given you for, for His glory? And so, Lord, we, we pray for that very thing in our lives. Lord, we, we, we pray that you would make us servants. Help us to be looking outward, up to you in faith and out to our neighbor in love. Make us outward focused people. Lord, liberate us from greed. Help us to find contentment in the only one in which we can find it, and that's in you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Let's stand and sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it, begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.